on this episode of the Discover the Word podcast. Daniel Ryan Day leads a special series of conversations for Holy Week. Holy Week is the week that begins with Palm Sunday and ends with the resurrection of Jesus. And it's called Holy Week because regardless of which denominational background you come from, everybody sees this week as really pivotal and important to the Christian story. So we're going to look at the events that happen throughout that week, specifically the events that revolve around Jesus. And Daniel has names for each of the days. And so we're going to learn more about Palm Sunday, Mystery Monday, Twisted Tuesday, Wicked Wednesday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and of course, Resurrection Sunday. Be part of these conversations called Holy Week, Managing Expectations, beginning next on Discover the Word. And this is Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Great to have you here to talk about this special week for us as Christians and have some conversations that will help us to remember and reflect on what happened during those days leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus and then his resurrection. Around the table are Mark Dehan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And as I said, Daniel will be leading the group this time around, and you heard that he has names for each of the days of Holy Week, some familiar and traditional, and others not so much. And he'll explain the reason for that in just a moment. So uh, to begin, they're going to talk about Palm Sunday and also what we're going to call Mystery Monday. Mystery Monday because uh, we're not 100% sure what happened on Monday. There are some events recorded that could have been on Monday, likely were, but we don't know for sure. And so in part, that's why Mystery Monday. And uh, all throughout this episode, there is this theme of expectations that will come up. And so that's where this study is going to begin. So I've heard that happiness is reality minus expectations. So sorry to give us a math problem to start this (laughs) conversation off. But if you think about that, whatever the first number is, if the second number is a lot bigger than the first number, then you're going to end up with a negative number, right? So happiness is reality. So what's really happening minus the expectations of what you thought would happen. So there's no such thing as happiness. Um, well, it depends. <laughs> but I think maybe to dig into that a little bit, maybe we'll start with what was a time in your life where you had very high expectations and reality did not quite meet those expectations? One time? How about... I'm just, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be nice, Mark. Just is, one is time. Is that the way we describe <laughs> life? Right. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know... You're really on to it, Mark, because in everything in life, whether we do it intentionally or not, we just naturally develop expectations. And with every one of those expectations comes an opportunity for disappointment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, a whole lot of life is more defined by failed expectations than it is by met expectations. This is just one story that hits me when you're describing this, Daniel. And Evan and I took this much longed for lifetime trip to Hawaii one time. And we had young kids, so it was extra fun because we got to leave them with grandparents and get away. And Mm -hmm. anyway, we landed and it was a monsoon, a monsoon. I mean, Mm -hmm. just pouring rain and winds howling and craziness. And all I wanted to do was walk on the beach. And, you know, I went out there and my hair's all whipped around my face and it was just crazy. And I was so disappointed. Mm -hmm. So happiness minus reality. But then, you know what I did is I went and bought a baseball cap and bundled up in a sweatshirt, and I learned a whole different appreciation for the environment, just to be in the elements of nature. And it was awesome that my expectations were, I had to like tube them. Yeah, literally. Yeah, you're a lot more spiritual than I am because... Uh, <laughs> I wasn't spiritual. My, my, was my, my mind went to uh, a couple of years ago on Memorial Day, Marlene and I took one of our sons and his wife and his two sons, our grandsons, to a major league baseball game. The boys had never been to a major league baseball game before, and we got to the park and... Um, you know, I never knew they played baseball on the surface of the sun. 
But it was like 150 <laughs> degrees. By the start of the second inning, I was the only one of our family that was still in the stands watching the oh, game. Gosh. They were all yeah. trying to retreat from the heat. And so we ended up leaving after the third inning. And it was just this really not fun day. Yeah. So it's interesting, though, that so far everyone has given negative examples. But there are times, right, sometimes where we have expectations and we're like, oh, that's going to be fun. And then we go, and then it's just way better than we ever yeah. expected. Can you think of one, Daniel? <laughs> I'm thinking of, so I really enjoy symphonies and orchestras. And one time for my birthday, my wife bought me tickets to go to the symphony. Nice. And I expected it to be good. And I got there, and either reality and expectations were really close, or if anything, the reality of experiencing it in person was better than my expectations and I just Lovely. yeah it was a great Lovely. memory and um, mm. so I think there are times right but expectations they affect all of us and we carry them with us and as you said Mart into just about every area of our lives and today we're going to look at two stories that Mark describes where people had very particular expectations of what they were expecting to happen. But before we get to that, I want to give kind of the context for this week. So this week, we're going to follow Jesus through the events of what has traditionally been called Holy Week. So holy, Mm. that word just means set apart as special. We're going to need to stay kind of 30,000 feet on this series because there's so much scripture that happens between the events of Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. And we just aren't going to have time in one series of conversations to be able to go through all of those different scriptures. Not to mention, a lot of us are pretty familiar with them. And so what I hope is that by looking at how all of these stories build on one another, maybe we'll see this week from a little bit different of an angle than we typically see the events of Holy Week. And it's going to have something to do with expectations, right? Yeah, and especially this conversation is going to have a lot to do with expectations. So what I'd like to do is go through Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of Holy Week. And I need to say these are the things that could have happened because the Bible evidently did not feel that it was super important for us to know these events happened Monday. These events happened Tuesday. We kind of have to put some pieces together to sense, oh, this was probably Monday and this was probably Tuesday. That's really important, Daniel, because I think sometimes when we hear people talking about these things, they tend to be very dogmatic about them. And, And I think it's a good caution to remind us that some of these things we don't have dogmatic information about. We have to take what we have and do the best we can with it. So that's a good caution. And again, if somebody just walked in the door and they said, Holy Week, which week is that? Great question, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. So Holy Week is the week that begins with Palm Sunday and ends with the resurrection of Jesus. And it's called Holy Week because regardless of which denominational background you come from, Everybody sees this week as really pivotal and important to the Christian story. And so we're going to look at the events that happen throughout that week, and specifically the events that revolve around Jesus. And so I'd like to begin with Mark 11, which is what Mark calls Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we don't have time to read all of the verses, so maybe we can just kind of pick apart the story a little bit and uh, emphasize a few different points. To begin, let's read verses 9 through 10. These are the words that the people, when Jesus came riding in on this donkey, these were the words that the people were saying, and so maybe we'll start there. So, Elisa, would you read that for us? Mark 11, verses 9 and 10. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Yeah, so what's the context for these words? What are the events? What's happening? Well, Israel is under Roman occupation, and they're under Roman rule. And they, talking about expectations, they have an expectation of a Messiah, a deliverer, an anointed rescuer out of David's line who will come and drive Rome out and set them free. And some of the symbolism that we see in the story here, what are they laying down before Jesus as he comes riding in on a donkey? Well, they've cut 
palm branches, mm-hmm. but then they also take their robes, their coats, their outer garments and lay them down. And I remember in other conversations, we've talked about how that was a way you would give honor to kings, right? Yeah. Who conquered. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at Jesus as being a literal king, expecting this kind of conquering, right? And specifically a king in the line of what line of kings? David, David. Yeah. Yeah. And so they have palm branches, they have coats. Uh, these are signs of victory and triumph. They're signs of welcoming a king into Jerusalem. To Bill's point, their expectation is not only is this Jesus person the Messiah, but he is this king that's going to deliver them from Rome. And so that's the expectation that is built into what we call Palm Sunday. And then the next day, which is Monday, which doesn't have like a liturgical name. And by liturgical, I mean in the church calendar, we call Palm Sunday. And then later in the week, we're going to have Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday. Monday doesn't really have a name, so we can call it Mystery Monday, I guess, for (laughs) for this. But we see Mark chapter 11, verse 12. What are the words there that we see? The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. So the next day. And then we get to this really interesting story where Jesus comes into the temple. And what does he do in the temple on that day? Yeah, he creates chaos. Yeah. And what's some of the historical context there that Jesus is dealing with, or at least we think? Well, it seems as though by the time of Jesus... The religious system in Israel had become a a banking aristocracy, if you will. And uh, the temple had been turned into not simply a place for worship of God through the sacrificial system of Israel, but it had become a place where money was exchanged, where theft took place through the exchange of money. Mm -hmm. And it had really uh, gone to a place of corruption that was actually kind of the opposite of what the intent of the temple was supposed to be. So it was already kind of a place of chaos, to your point, Mart. And then Jesus comes in and um, is quite upset with this whole system. Yeah, but the chaos of the hearts couldn't Mm -hmm. be seen. They were oblivious to it until he started turning over tables. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it was a scene of injustice, of abusing the poor. There were a lot of people that had to travel really, really far to get to Jerusalem for high holy days. And so they would sell maybe their lamb in their hometown and then bring the money and they expected to be able to buy a lamb when they got to Jerusalem. But then they would get overcharged and wouldn't be able to offer a lamb and so they might have to buy something else instead. And so there was just this this spirit of injustice, this spirit of uh, abusing those who were coming to worship God. And that is what Jesus, to your point, Mart, it seems like this chaos that he's bringing, but it's also this way in which he's fighting back against the way the temple has been used to abuse people instead of as a place of worship. And so we have these two pictures of expectations. Palm Sunday, they expected a king. And as we're going to find out as we go through the week, Jesus is a king, but not the type of king that they're expecting. The other picture of the Messiah in the Old Testament is the picture of of a priest, a priest king like David, who would lead in worship. And Jesus comes into the temple and does what they wouldn't have expected. Mm. That's an interesting point. I haven't thought of that before. Yeah. And so I want us to think through this week as we go through the different events that Jesus experiences. What are the expectations that we have of who God is, of how God should act? And how does Jesus push back against the expectations that we have of him? And I think what we'll find as we go through that Jesus doesn't necessarily meet the expectations we have, but that Jesus fulfills a reality that's much better than the expectations that maybe we think are more important. All right, Palm Sunday and Mystery Monday the beginning of Holy Week and introducing us to how expectations, both then and now, can really be challenging. Being around Jesus is so much like experiencing whiplash at times, isn't it? You know, you think one thing and another thing drops. Yeah, yeah, and that's why we're calling this episode Holy Week, Managing Expectations. And so now we move on to what we're going to call Twisted Tuesday and how what Jesus may have done on Tuesday of Holy Week 
would have given people whiplash and twisted their expectations. Twisted Tuesday is next. What is one of the most generous things that has ever happened to you? And I'll go first, so you have time to think for a second. So generous things. My wife and I worked for a ministry many years ago, and we had to fundraise for that ministry, so finances were very, very tight. And one time I checked our bank account, it was $1,000 over what it was supposed to be. So I actually called the bank or went in, I can't remember which, and was like, hey, there's like, and they're like, oh no, somebody made an anonymous deposit of $1,000 into your account. Ironically, my clutch went out on my car a couple of days later and it cost $1,000 to fix. Wow. But it was one of those moments where someone did something incredibly generous. And obviously uh-huh. I haven't forgotten that. Isn't yeah. that cool? Yeah. You know, it comes to my mind. In the later years of my wife's illness, I really felt like I needed to put in a generator just in case the power went out. And uh, during that time, I mean, it cost quite a bit. It cost $8,000, believe it or not. I got a a reimbursement from the gas company (laughs) for $8,000. No way. Plus $150, something like that. It showed up on my billing. I couldn't figure out what that huge number was. I waited a few weeks. I thought maybe a mistake. Mm -hmm. And finally, I called in. And I said, you're kidding. No, no, I can't. you got to be kidding. And they said, no, no. We refigured costs over the last, whatever, 20, 25 years. goodness. And found out that we were overcharging you. Well, it came like within $100 to the cost to put in that generator. Wow. Mm. A couple of years ago, uh, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned it to you guys or not, but um, I grew up liking the Beatles, and uh, (laughs) I never got to see the Beatles in concert, and I just thought, you know, that's something that I would have really liked to have been able to do, but, you know, obviously it never happened. And then a few years ago, uh, some friends made it possible for Marlene and I to go and hear Paul McCartney in concert and the tickets were way beyond what should ever be paid to go to anybody's concert anywhere (laughs) and yet they gifted us Mm. tickets and some nice amenities that went with it and they did it just because they knew that it would make me smile and i just thought that was really really terrific of them to do that that's That's precious i'm thinking about a night on our honeymoon evan and i uh, were out to dinner and we went to pay the bill, and it had already been paid mm. by mm. somebody else in the restaurant. So, yeah, these are great stories. Yeah. What does that extravagant generosity, when we experience that, what does it do to us? How does it change us, change our perspective? Well, for me, just immediately, I remember about two years ago, Evan and I were out to dinner yet again. And we looked over at this couple. They were clearly celebrating an anniversary, and we paid their bill <laughs> anonymously yeah. and left. Yeah, that's <laughs> so it, it makes yeah. me generous, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah, the whole pay good. it forward thing. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, it's kind of humbling yeah, for that sure. somebody out of the clear blue sky would want to do something that nice for you. Mm-hmm. I don't deserve that, certainly, but I mean, was, I'm glad they did it. But at the same time, it's just kind of like, wow, that's really amazing. And I think it's kind of humbling. It's like a wave in the shore. Yeah. It buoys you up again and and sustains you. In a way, it's kind of the (laughs) unexpectations, where you start off with zero expectations, but something surprising happens that can not just make your day. Sometimes it makes your whole year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I intentionally asked about extravagant generosity, that word extravagant, which generosity really is kind of extravagant just by itself. But I use that qualifier word because this week we're looking through the different situations, settings, experiences that Jesus had during what is called Holy Week or this special week each year where we remember what Christ did on our behalf on the cross and at the resurrection. And on Tuesday, which is the day that we're going to consider in this conversation, we're going to look at a situation where I don't know how else to describe it other than extravagant generosity, extravagant Mm -hmm. honor that a woman shows toward Jesus. This story shows up in Mark chapter 14. And if we look at just the beginning of verse one, this is where it kind of indicates to me that it could have been Tuesday that this happened. Could somebody read just the beginning of Mark 14, verse 1? Sure. It says, Now the Passover and the unleavened bread was two days off. Two days off. And then when we get to Thursday, and Jesus has that upper room 
discourse with his disciples and they experience basically the first day of unleavened bread. So it seems like maybe this is Tuesday. But again, we're holding that relatively loosely. And so let's look at this story beginning in verse 3 of chapter 14 and reading through verse 9. Okay. While Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke it and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. But there were some who said to one another in anger, Why was this ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For the poor you always have with you, and whenever you wish, you can do them good. But you do not always have me with you. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Hmm. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of in memory of her. That last part's sure true, because here we are 2,000 years later still talking about what this woman did, this moment of extravagant generosity or honor that she gave Jesus. I want to start by just looking at where did she pour this very costly oil. This um, section of scripture described it on his head Mm -hmm. and running down onto his beard, which is just beautiful. I think there's some other versions that say that she poured it on his feet, but it's it's important to note that the head here, yeah. Yeah, and throughout the Old Testament, we're given this picture of people being anointed specifically on their head. What does that often come with? Sometimes it was the anointing of a king, Mm-hmm. and setting apart a king, which kind of takes us back to our previous conversation of the kingly expectations that uh, the people seem to have for Jesus. Yeah. And Aaron was anointed as priest. Yeah. But this was kind of also, I mean, in addition to the formal uses for kings and priests, wasn't it also, Daniel, something that would be done for someone who comes into a home as a guest and they would be anointed with oil on the head as a way to refresh them from the heat of the day. Wasn't that part of it too? Yeah. And then also uh, throughout church tradition and church history, there's been kind of a uh, tradition passed down of anointing those who are sick with oil and then also anointing people with oil to bless them. I bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then crossing, you know, maybe someone's forehead with oil or something. Sort of as a sign of the Holy Spirit, yeah. Yeah, so signs of blessing, signs of anointing. When we see oil used in the Old Testament, we see it as setting something apart for something, and usually it's used in worship to God so they could make a table that's set apart for worship to God. They set apart people as people who will lead in worship to God. What does Jesus say that he's being set apart for? Well, he makes an allusion to burial, and that's what he makes this allusion to. She's anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Which is just the opposite of what we've been talking about. Right. And Bill, you mentioned a minute ago the expectation of the kingly Messiah that they had. And so this anointing would be seen as like, oh, okay, here's part of that expectation of him being a king. And then Jesus says, actually, I'm being anointed for my burial. Mm -hmm. That would kind of throw things off for them. Mm -hmm. Being around Jesus is so much like experiencing whiplash at times, isn't (laughs) it? You know, you think one thing and another thing drops. Yeah. There's also a sense, too, don't you think, Daniel, where when we get into the Good Friday portion of the story and you see the the crucifixion and the events following the death of Jesus, they're in a rush and they don't have time to give full preparation to the body. And it's almost like this is preparing for that in advance. They're not going to be able to do what they need to do then. And she's participating in it ahead of time in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the other themes I see here, too, in this story are just what we call extravagant generosity at the beginning, but it's also this extravagant worship Mm -hmm. that she is pouring out on him. So not only is it a very, kind of what you're describing, Bill, a very useful thing in that Mm -hmm. she's preparing him ahead of time for burial, but it's also this picture of beautiful worship. And it's interesting to see how the people around her respond. How do they respond to her worshiping Jesus or giving him honor, preparing him for burial in this way. 
Well, it's like whiplash again. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's said that uh, this oil is worth more than a year's wages. And mm-hmm. so the objection is she didn't have to go so overboard. She could have used just yeah. a drop or two, and then we could have sold this and taken care of the poor. Isn't that what you want us to do, Jesus? Isn't that what your gospel's about, Jesus? Mm-hmm. It's this constant uh, juxtaposition of what we expect versus what happens. And yet her gift is extravagant. It's a gift of worship and love poured out in this moment when he really needs to know somebody understands his love. And, and the response again is, "This is their feeling is this is wrong. This is yeah. so wrong. Yeah. No self awareness the way she comes in, yeah. and then no awareness of what this is worth mm-hmm. in pouring it out on him." Mm-hmm. There's also this little phrase: "The first thing Jesus says is let her alone." And some scholars think that that might mean that they tried to physically restrain her from doing this. And Jesus is in a sense saying, take your hands off of her Uh uh, by saying, let her alone that way. So it may not have been just some anger or some indignation. It may actually have been some physical stuff going on too. And again, not what would be expected as women were not valued in that way. And Jesus constantly honored women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if we think about this story in light of just the events of this week, so whether it's in light of expectations, how we expect things to go, for me, as I was thinking about this story and kind of sitting in it, I was actually feeling pretty convicted of the times when I've been even just in like a worship setting and I've judged other people for the way they're expressing love or adoration mm-hmm. for God. I mean, and it sounds terrible to say that, but there have been times. No, I've been there, believe it. It sounds like mm-hmm. real to me. me too. And so yeah, what I see in this story as Jesus is going through these events leading up to his death and to the resurrection is here's a moment of Holy Week where we can pause and consider what our expectations of what it looks like to worship Jesus are, of what our expectations to worship God And maybe to be open to the conviction that the Holy Spirit might bring that sometimes the way that we think maybe is the right way or that we hold on to so tightly that we might be missing something that is happening with Jesus because we're so focused on holding so tightly Mm -hmm. to what our expectations are to what we think is right. Managing Expectations as we're seeing a helpful lens through which to look at the days of Holy Week. They're looking at what we call Twisted Tuesday because of how, as Elisa said, being around Jesus can be so much like experiencing whiplash and having our expectations twisted. You're at the Discover the Word table with Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And this episode of the podcast is titled Holy Week, Managing Expectations. Well, next is Wicked Wednesday and an unspeakable act that likely grew out of unmet expectations. We'll pick up there after this quick break. Now, as a compliment to our study on this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, I would encourage you to check out a book Bill Crowder has written called For This He Came. Bill adds so much to these conversations, and I know you'll appreciate this book that he wrote for Easter. Because as we're seeing this week, Jesus' journey to the cross during his final week is full of remarkable places and events, such as the Last Supper in the Upper Room, the Agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' suffering on the cross, and then, of course, his resurrection. Well, in this book, Bill also walks you through the final hours of Jesus' earthly ministry, bringing you insights into the language and the traditions and the biblical sites that will enrich your understanding of the Easter story. So to order a copy of For This He Came by Bill Crowder, published by Our Daily Bread Publishing, go to ourdailybreadpublishing.org. That's ourdailybreadpublishing.org. And search for the title For This He Came by Bill Crowder. All right, Wicked Wednesday of Holy Week is next. And to get into this, Daniel seems to be a little hesitant about asking what could be kind of an awkward question, but we'll get the conversation moving in a helpful direction. Oh, boy. Um, Let's see. How do I ask this question? I'm just going to go for it. What are some of your biggest regrets, if you're willing to share? 
I'm not sure that I'm going to share any specifics, but I can tell you that That's fine. most of the major regrets that I have have to do with my parenting of my mm. kids. Mm-hmm. Times that I reflect on times that maybe I reacted badly to situations or I didn't take time to ask questions and understand. I just reacted in the moment and it wasn't good. Mm. You know, I've got plenty of regrets in every area of my life probably, but the ones that jump to the front of my mind usually have to do with something with one of our kids. That's honest, Bill, and I I relate. I do. Yeah, I do too. Mm. You know, I I picked up too, Bill, in your description. I think that idea of not asking questions Mm. really strikes me as I've so often I've regretted responding or throwing my own opinion into the mix, into the fray, you know, and to disagree quickly rather than to to be honestly curious and to ask the question. That's so important in life. Otherwise, we're, we're tangled up in, in arguments so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe to not have to be right in a given moment, yeah. you know, in order to learn. I went to my mom who died over 30 years ago. And I was so still in formation, you know, as I was in my early, early, early 30s. And I regret, and there's nothing you can do about it, you know, now, but I regret that I wasn't further along developmentally to be able to process some more things with her. Mm. But I just wasn't. Mm. And yet, even now, I've learned that God can help redeem those moments that were not fulfilled the way we desire as he gives us perspective, you know. So when I think of regret, I try to have a bookend with it, which is grace, you know, to to not wash it away, but hold it in the tension of it didn't go the way I hoped. I wasn't who I wanted to be. And yet even in that, God can meet me. And I don't mean that Pollyanna-ish. I just mean God can still use it and teach Mm. me in it. Well, I don't know about you, Bill and Mark, but I think we can just end the conversation there. (laughs) (laughs) My second question was going to be, how do you get past those regrets? Which I think is, Elisa, thank you so much for describing that part of the journey. Because the truth is, is with regret, you can never fully get past it in that it's a regret. It's a memory. It's stuck in that way. But it's important to deal with those moments where you know, we've been talking a lot about expectations, those moments when we look back and we judge ourselves rightly sometimes and wrongly sometimes for not acting in a way or doing whatever it is that now we expected ourselves back then to have done. Mm. And so in today's conversation, we're going to look at uh, an unspeakable act at a moment, one of the darkest moments in history, especially for this particular person, Judas, as we continue walking through the days of Holy Week. And we've been walking through the days, we've been looking at what happened on Palm Sunday, what happened on what we kind of called like Mysterious Monday, and what we could call in the last conversation, Twisted Tuesday, because there's these Mm -hmm. twisted expectations. Today, I want to look at Wednesday, and you could call it Wicked Wednesday, We have to be careful even calling it Wednesday because it's really not clear when Judas actually goes to the chief priests and the Pharisees and decides to betray Jesus. But let's read uh, three different accounts, Mark 14, verses 10 and 11. Bill, if you'll read that one. And then Elisa, if you'll have Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Okay. And then, Mart, if you'll read Luke 22, 1 through 6. And we're just going to hear the way the gospel writers describe the events that happen. So Mark 14, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Okay, then in Matthew 26... Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. Mm-hmm. And then Luke 22 says, Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and to the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money. 
He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Well, that's ironic. I'd never seen that last little bit when no crowd was present. That's the opposite of what happened, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. What, what I found really interesting as I read these in that order was Mark tends to always be the shortest in stories. <laughs> so he'll give us like the Cliff Notes version. And then it tends to expand as you get into Matthew and Luke. And, and sometimes that switches. It's not an exact science. But one of the things I notice is progressively, as we read from Mark to Matthew to Luke, we get little details of the story that one of the others didn't include. So, for example, Mark didn't mention that it was 30 pieces of silver. He didn't mention that Judas asked the question, what will you give me if I betray him to you? And then even just the phrase, from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And then when you get to the Luke story, you see, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, which is a new detail to the story that Matthew and Mark didn't give us. But the one thing that all three of them give us, and it's almost like they're trying to pound us in the face with it, one of the 12, one of the 12, yeah. one of the 12. Uh, I mean, they don't yeah. let up on that. Good point. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's where this theme of expectations is important to mention because when you're reading the story, you would not expect, I mean, now we expect Judas to be the one that betrays Jesus because we're so used to the story now, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is like a picture on the wall that we've seen for a thousand years. But if you were reading this story for the first time, that is the moment you go, whoa, I didn't expect one of his 12 to be the one who betrays him. And plus he was probably the most trusted among them. He was holding the money. Yeah. Yeah, In fact, what are some of the other things like the meaning of his name and things like that? Well, we talked about the fact that the name Judas means praise. It comes from the name Judah. And so his name is the opposite of what he does. Uh, so ironic. He betrays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's great irony. The name Iscariot, some people say it means dagger man because Sicarii were assassins. So man of the dagger. Others say he was from a village called Kirioth, so he was a man of Kirioth, and if that's true, he was the only disciple that was not from Galilee. Hmm. You also had mentioned to us about the potential motives mm-hmm. that Judas had. Which have to do with expectations, right? Because yeah. some think that if he was a dagger man, then he would have been in the company of the zealots who were trying to physically, uh, mm-hmm. through terrorism basically, trying to drive Rome out to gain their freedom. And so he would have been very much anxious for Jesus to declare for kingship and kingdom. Yeah. And if nothing else, one of the themes that we see with Judas throughout the whole story of the Gospels is greed. He's the money keeper, and he keeps slipping a little bit of money out for himself, which is interesting that, in fact, we get a glimpse that Jesus even knew potentially that he was doing that. And yet, for some reason, to your point, Mart, there was this trust or this picture of not confronting Judas on that piece. Mm. But we see Judas struggling with greed, which interestingly is also one of the temptations that Jesus experienced. That was one of the things that jumped out to me as I was thinking about what does it mean that Satan entered Judas? Uh. I think maybe that language feels a little intense to us, but all of us can think of the times in our own lives where the enemy has whispered something into our ear and we have done whatever that thing is that the enemy has whispered into our ear. And then maybe later realized how evil, how how despicable that was. And we see just a tiny bit of that, perhaps, as you're suggesting, Daniel, in the Mark 14 telling that we looked at in our last conversation of the woman lavishly anointing Jesus' body. And it's Judas who objects in that particular passage. And so money has bugged him, you know, so Mm -hmm. this pouring out of money has bugged him. And then just a little bit later, he goes and Mm -hmm. turns Jesus in, so to speak. Yeah. And just in case we think that Satan is the one that is doing all this and Judas is just some kind of robotic figure in the story, that's one of the details that Luke helps us with. It says at the very end of that section, so he, Judas, consented. Judas agrees with what the chief priests, the officers of the temple police or temple guard wanted to do. He consents, he gives in. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think this is such an important 
story for us as we walk through, in a memorial fashion, the events of Holy Week, of the events leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection, is traditionally this has been an important week to remember our own brokenness and how it affects us. And oftentimes as Christians, especially on this side of the resurrection, we tend to really move past the brokenness quickly and say, but I'm rescued by Jesus. So, oh yeah, I struggle with that, but I da 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 da. And I think what Wednesday offers us in Holy Week is a day to not move quickly past the brokenness within us too, to ask the question, what is the Judasness in me? Hmm. Where are the places where I have betrayed my faith, my savior, my friends, where I've been a cause of injustice in the world, where I've given into greed, wanting more and more of what I have enough of already. What is the Judasness in me? And I think it's important for us to sit and to think about that during Holy Week as we prepare, yes, for Jesus to die on the cross, but also for him to rise again and ultimately free us from uh, the brokenness that we have within us. Wicked Wednesday and the betrayal of Judas and God's ultimate redemption plan. And just a side note, in our next podcast, Bill is going to lead us into a more in-depth look at the story of Judas. We'll dive deeper into who Judas was, what he did, and how Jesus responded to him. I think you're going to find that fascinating. Well, we're talking about Holy Week, managing expectations. And so next is Thursday, Thursday of Holy Week, Maundy Thursday. Now, you may be familiar with what Maundy Thursday is, but uh, you may also be like some of the members of this Discover the Word group, and you may not always have been completely clear on what Maundy Thursday is about. So we are in this series of conversations on the events of Holy Week, and we've looked at what happened on Palm Sunday, what happened on Monday, what happened on Tuesday, what may have happened on Wednesday. And now we come to the first day that in church calendars is actually named, and it's called Maundy Thursday. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, I never actually saw it written. I always just heard people say it, and I was like, are they saying Monday, Thursday? Yeah, like, what is yeah. Monday, Thursday? <laughs> it's the second part of Monday, yeah. Okay, either or, right? It's got to be one or the other. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I can honestly tell you, Daniel, that I never heard that phrase growing up. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? I mean, mm-hmm. that was just absolutely foreign term to me. Yeah, and it's spelled M-A-U. Right? Mm-hmm. N D Y, Mondi. And I make up things when I don't know what they are. So, what I have made up about Mondi Thursday is kind of a maudlin. See, isn't that silly what I did? And I think, oh, it's like a really somber looking back, you know, kind of Monday, Thursday. That's what I made up. <laughs> Some of our friends wonder where in the world we're from because I'm sure this is a big part of their yeah. life. Yeah. For as long as they've been around. Yeah. And that's why, you know, growing up, my grandma was Catholic. And so Maundy Thursday is a part of church tradition that they've been celebrating for many, many years. And so it kind of depends on what denominational background you come Mm -hmm. from as to whether or to how familiar you are with the term. So Maundy comes from the Latin word mandatum, where we get mandate or commandment (gasps) from. And it's because it was on Thursday of Holy Week that Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. And so it's named after a very famous passage in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. And so let's read that. Okay, I would never have gone there, Daniel. I mean, I would never have thought, well, that's it. Okay. And you know what's really sad is that should give it Mm -hmm. a day of supreme importance sure mm-hmm. anticipating where this week was going as well as sort of expressing the spirit of the heart that should be most important in all of Jesus followers yeah and so let's read that passage John 13:34 through 35 and maybe mark could you read that for us this is the new commandment the new mandatum mandate that Jesus gave his disciples okay verse 34 Jesus says a new command I give you, love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. You know, Daniel, automatically my mind jumped back as Mark was reading that to where we started the week talking about expectations. And we've spent so much time talking about our expectations, our expectations. And now on Maundy Thursday, we get his expectations, Mm -hmm. Uh, his expectation Mm -hmm. of how we are to live in community with one another. That's good, Bill. Yeah. And speaking of expectations, so there's the big 10, right? The 10 commandments. Here's Jesus saying, I'm giving you a new commandment. How shocking would that language be to his followers? It might not have been that shocking. Push back on this, Daniel, if I'm going the wrong direction, but it might not be that shocking because in the weeks leading up and the days leading up to Maundy Thursday, Jesus was constantly being tested by the religious leaders. And one of the questions that they asked was, what's the greatest commandment? Mm -hmm. He didn't go to the Ten Commandments. He went to the love God and the part that maybe fits here, love your neighbor as yourself. So maybe that was a foreshadowing of what was going to come here. And obviously the disciples remember those stories because we have them to this day, right? They've been memorialized in that way. I think what makes it shocking is the fact that it's new, the word new. Okay. Why is it being qualified as a new commandment? Because when Jesus responds in those passages you're talking about, Bill, he responds with a quotation from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. He's quoting from Numbers to give them the greatest commandment. Here, it feels like Jesus is starting a new conversation in a way. Mm. So push back on that a little bit, especially within the context of everything else Jesus says in what's called the upper room discourse. What is happening here that feels new? Well, there's more of a shift. It's more of a almost a U-turn. You know, instead of saying which is the greatest of the old commandments we're familiar with, it's like here is a new commandment, and that's even more shocking. And I think too, you talked about the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, and the first part of it deals with our relationship with God, and the second part deals with our relationships with one another. But that's all about actions. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do Mm -hmm. this. Maybe what makes this new is now Jesus Mm. is talking about the heart and not the actions. Let me push back on that, Bill, because we know from a New Testament point of view that all of the Old Testament commandments, all of them are in, in some way brought to fullness of meaning in the law of love. James talks about that. Sure. All those too. But another possibility is, and it seems to me it has to be the important one is that jesus qualifies it and in effect says what he means by new Mm -hmm. okay when he says as i have loved you okay yeah okay that makes sense and how does jesus not only qualify it through what he says but what does he do to exemplify what he means by loving first of all in the room even before what happens later well, first of all, in the room, he washes the disciples' feet. He takes the servant's place. Yeah. And he's just done this before he says these words. Yeah, so we have this really important physical context of Jesus taking on the nature of the lowest of servants in that time hmm. and washing the disciples' feet. And it's such a big deal that Peter, what does Peter want Jesus to do? No way. Wash his whole body. <laughs> yeah. First he says, no way, because it's right. such a big deal, Mart. And then uh-huh. to your point, Elisa, he's like, well, in that case, go ahead and just wash all of me because of how loving this moment is. Talk about shocking expectations. Here's Jesus, the rabbi. And, and the rabbi says, if you won't let me do this, you can have no part of me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's when he says, okay, mm-hmm. all of me. So I think what Jesus is doing here is basically in the spirit of what he's been doing all along, which is you've heard it said, but I say. Mm -hmm. You've heard it said that this is the way you're supposed to live. What I want to draw your attention to, though, is, yeah, the actions, they do matter, but not as much as the heart behind which the actions come. Mm. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about specific commandments in the Old Testament and then says, you know what, though? This is the real heart behind it. And so here in the upper room, we see Jesus saying, here's the new commandment. If nothing else, here's the new thing I want you to focus on. And that's loving, loving God, loving others, but specifically loving others because of the way that I have loved you. 
How does that fit within this context of this week of events? It's a shocking thing to see Jesus in the role of the servant after just a few days before he was being lifted up as a king. Mm-hmm. And to see him on his hands and knees washing feet a couple of days after cleansing the temple and turning over tables. I mean, it just seems to be a very different picture of Jesus that we're being given. And the reality of where he's going to take it Mm. in terms of how he acts out further beyond washing feet or praying for them or breaking bread for them to take it to the cross. This is the way I love you. And this is how I'm asking you to love each other. Mm. Yeah. And so what we see in this story, and of course, we only read two verses of it, but what we see is Jesus is explaining to them all that Moses had written about him, all the law had written about him, all the prophets had written, all of this pointing to him. So Jesus is taking the whole story of Israel and he's saying, hey, something new is happening. It was all pointing to this. So he takes the expectations of what the Old Testament story was and he says, they are met in me. The other thing Jesus could be doing here too is something that rabbis were kind of known for at that time, right? They had taken the commandments of the Old Testament and they had expounded on those commandments to, I think originally they were trying to make it more helpful to their followers. Like this is what it means to actually live out the commandments. But often what would happen is as a rabbi is expanding on say, you know, keep the Sabbath, they would begin to add all of these layers of here's how we can protect ourselves Mm -hmm. from breaking the Sabbath. Here's how, okay, let's not pick any grain. Hey, if your animal falls in the ditch, maybe you shouldn't help the animal out because that might be work. Hey, don't walk too far. Oh, hey, don't carry your mat. That would probably be work. And so rabbis would complicate it over time. But what we see with Jesus here is he's almost doing the opposite, which is like, hey, I know you've been hearing your whole lives how hard it is to follow God. Mm. Here's a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. And so we see this model of selfless love that Jesus gives his disciples on Maundy Thursday, this new commandment of love. And I think what it does for us is it just, it frees us to realize, first of all, walking with Jesus is much easier in some ways, or at least much more simple than I make it out to be, because it's about walking in relationship. But that relationship is possible because I have been so loved by him first that I then can not only love him in return, but then love those around me as well. Yeah, the commandment is simple, and yet it's something we all wrestle with. Love one another just as Christ has loved you. And Jesus washing the disciples' feet and giving that command, that mandate to his followers is what Maundy or Mandate Thursday is all about. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And we're walking through each day of Holy Week in a series called Holy Week, Managing Expectations. And expectations has been a common theme in these conversations and how expectations of Jesus, both then and now, play a huge role in our understanding of what God was doing. And so in this last segment now, they're going to talk about Good Friday and why do we call it Good Friday and Holy Saturday, looking ahead to the triumph of Resurrection Sunday. And so let's listen. We're in a series of conversations on the days of Holy Week. Holy meaning set apart as special week because it's a week (laughs) of time. And uh, we've talked a little bit about how these are, especially at the beginning of the week, the days are a little loose because the Bible was not as concerned with telling us what events happened on which day early on. But the Bible does give us these stories of events that happened kind of in progression. And so beginning with Palm Sunday, what did we see? And then what are some of the other days that we've talked about and what happened? Well, Palm Sunday's when Jesus went in on a donkey and everybody thought, here is the king. Here is the real thing we've been waiting for. And they laid down their palm branches and took off their jackets and let the donkey walk across them and screamed out, Hosanna in the highest. And, you know, they expected a literal king and they thought this was the moment. Yeah, that was the great expectation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then on Monday, we think, to your point, Daniel, we think, Mm -hmm that Jesus cleansed the temple. 
which would have been another expectation-shattering sort of moment. Uh, They wouldn't have expected that uh, from him to happen. And then on Tuesday, we saw uh, Jesus being anointed for his burial in advance. And kind of a picture of extravagant worship that this woman pours out on Jesus and a surprising response by those who are around Jesus because they get angry with her and scold her and Mm -hmm. judge her for what she's doing. And they didn't expect such lavishness. They thought it was inappropriate, right? Yeah. And then Wednesday, potentially, what did we talk about? We talked about Judas's betrayal. Mm Mm-hmm which is also stunning that the very betrayal of Jesus came from one of the 12. Yeah. And we kind of encouraged one another to consider the question, what Judasness is in me? Mm-hmm. And it's really important during Holy Week not to move so quickly to Jesus's death and resurrection and the saving work that Jesus did without thinking about what he's saving us from. And that's the brokenness within us and spending a little time thinking about what that looks like for each of us. Mm. And then Maundy Thursday. Yeah, that was the great surprise. It really was. We think that I have thought that the word Maundy meant like something like sad. And you helped us understand, Daniel, which many people probably knew, and I'm just late to the game here, but that Maundy really has its root in the word mandate, which means command. And Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another the way I've loved you. It must be that when he used the word commandment, well, he was using a word that would have had deep roots in their culture and their religion. But if you think of it in terms of his spirit, it wasn't like, okay, now I'm demanding of you, like in a military sense. Mm. It had to be this, like, this is my urging. This is my instruction. You know, this is what I want you to do. This is what's going to define you. And uh, there had to be a, a real spirit of that word that would give a, a wonderful, rich meaning to it. And even the context, Mart helps us see that where he washes the disciples' feet. He prays for them. He teaches them. He promises that the Holy Spirit's going to come help them with this new commandment that he has given them. And so you're right. The whole spirit of that is like a loving invitation, but an invitation where it's like, but I really want you to come. And so, yeah, I think you're right. Well, let's look at the last two days of Holy Week, which lead up to Resurrection Sunday, and it's Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Good Friday, I don't know about you, but that has always felt like a weird term to me because it feels like it should be called Bad Friday, not Good Friday. Yes, Dark Friday, something, yeah. Yeah, what I've always thought, Daniel, and I don't know where I heard this, but I I know it came from somebody other than me, but uh, that it was not Good Friday because what happened was good. It was Good Friday because of what was accomplished by what happened. Yeah. Well, I kind of did a little bit of research on the semantics of the word good and some of the meaning that traditionally has come with the word good. And when I say traditionally, I mean just historically. And the word good used to have a sense of sacred to it. So Uh, when you called something good, it was like using the word sacred, which means set apart for something special or holy. So we could also call it Holy Friday or set apart Friday or sacred Friday because of what happened on that day. So I think that sense of good is this sense, Bill, very much what you were describing of, we're not looking at these events and saying, oh, that was good. We're looking at what happened as a result of the events. And it's like, wow, that is special. Mm. That is set apart. That is as ugly as can get when it comes to human history. But what happened as a result of that ugliness was something very good for the world and for us. One of the other things that I noticed when I was looking at some of the the meaning behind the word good is in Old English, they actually used to call this Longa Friday, which means long, so just Long Friday, which is another helpful way to think about the events of Friday because so much happens Mm. in this day and so much scripture is dedicated to what happens Mm. on this day. Mm. I mean, think about just the multiple trials that we see. Mm. I mean, a trial is like a big event throughout human history. And we see multiple trials in this one day, Jesus before the council, Jesus before Herod, Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before Pilate again. So we have like all of these trials that happen. Peter's betrayal happens on Long Friday or Good Friday. Jesus is beaten, tortured, and crucified. He's put on the cross both naked and shamed. That one really stuck out to me as I was thinking about just the whole story of the Bible and where the story begins 
you have Adam and Eve in the garden at the beginning of time, naked and not ashamed. Mm. And you have Jesus on the cross, naked and shamed. Mm. And just how he's completing the story, right? He's bringing more meaning to what happened in the garden by experiencing the opposite. Yeah, and he had covered their shame in the garden. Mm. And now he's allowing them to rip it off of himself. So full circle. Wow. Jesus is also mocked by one criminal, and the one on the other side believes in him. Jesus felt forsaken by God. I mean, can we just pause there for a moment and relate to feeling forsaken by God? Have you experienced that before? Mm. I mean, those moments when life feels out of control, right? And all you can think about is all of those lament psalms where mm-hmm. David cries out, How long, O Lord? How long are you going to abandon me? How long are you going to... I mean, you hear the echoes of that in Jesus' words on the cross and, and so many times in our own words as well. Mm. Yeah. Ultimately, Jesus dies on Long or Good Friday and talk about expectations again. The first believer we see in Jesus after his death is who? Roman soldier. Yeah, a Roman centurion becomes the first believer. This Gentile looks and says, wow, truly this was the Son of God. And then Jesus is buried, and who is he buried by? Well, not the disciples. Right. Not the 12, but he was buried by disciples in terms of the women who were followers. Yeah. That's that's counterintuitive right there. It's counter-expectation. Yeah. And he's also buried by a member of the council. So Jesus has been on trial before this council earlier in the day, and now a member of the council, Joseph, who was described as a good and righteous man, so someone who has a right relationship with God, is the one who helps bury Jesus. And he's accompanied by Nicodemus, who had yeah. met with Jesus earlier at night. Yeah, and yeah. if you think about the whatever hopes and expectations Nicodemus took away from John chapter 3, yeah, I mean, to be there burying the rabbi that he had gone to see at night had to have been a hugely heartbreaking thing. It's such a full circle, as I've used that term before in this conversation, but it's such a full circle of the expectation being met by reality and then sitting with our regrets and God's love in the same place. I mean, you see it in the characters who are involved all the way up to the end and then Mm -hmm. beyond the crucifixion into the resurrection. And that's Mm -hmm. the story of the gospel, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm so thankful that the disciples, like this is where I see honesty in the scripture so clearly, because if I was telling the story later, As a disciple, I would have maybe wanted to put myself there bearing Jesus or something. Mm. But the fact that this story has been passed down to us as, yeah, we all ran away and it was a member of the council and the women that buried Jesus. How much confidence, you know, does that give us in this story? Mm. And so all that happens on Long Friday and then we get to the great inhale, Holy Saturday, this day of rest. And where is Jesus laid to rest? In what location? In a garden. In a garden. So just like where Jesus was on the cross and he was naked and shamed, and in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, the story begins in the garden, and here Jesus is resting dead in a garden as the whole world begins to be made right again. And so we have this moment of new creation uh, in the garden. Mm. And a lot of people remember Holy Saturday as a day of quiet, a day of rest, a day where they, some people will eat like mourners. So they'll snack a little bit throughout the day, but mostly fast and pray and kind of take on that spirit of mourning. Not because we we don't need to mourn anymore. Jesus rose again. But in order to really feel the weight as much as we can of that week. And so maybe a good place for us to end this conversation as we prepare to experience Resurrection Sunday is to rest in the fact that even though we can look back now and see the resurrection and see the hope that comes from the resurrection as Jesus delivered us from sin and death, we live in a world where we experience the brokenness of sin and death still. We live in a world where just like Jesus was resting in the grave on Saturday, we kind of live in Holy Saturday every day as we await when Jesus will return and finally make all things right. I just want to end by praying for us and for all who have joined us at the table. Just as we think about the events of Holy Week, this set apart a special week, what are our expectations of who God is and how he works? And how can God meet us in those expectations? 
and not just meet us in our expectations, but deliver a reality that is far better than anything that we could have guessed or created ourselves. And so, Mart, I'd like to ask you, would you be willing just to pray for us as we think about these events that happened 2,000 years ago and how they are still impacting us today? Hmm. Our Father, in this week that we've been contemplating, you have taught us so much about yourself that you are so much better than what we can see or than what we expect. And you, Father, are with us now. By your Son, you've rescued us. And in anticipation of his return, we can see, Father, where this week was really going. May we live with confidence in you and in anticipation of great expectation of that day. Thanks, Mart. Holy Week, Managing Expectations. And thank you, Daniel, for leading us in this discussion. I think we've all been reminded of just how life-changing the events of Easter were. And even if we've heard this story a million times, I think there are still new insights we've taken away from focusing on what happened Palm Sunday through Resurrection Sunday. Now, Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And you know, whether it's through radio or podcasting, videos or devotional material, mobile apps or online resources, our goal at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries is to help people grow in their relationship with God. And for almost 85 years, we have witnessed God's faithfulness to our mission to tell the story of Jesus and make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And we would invite you to join us in spreading that message by supporting us financially. Making a donation is quick and easy. You simply go online to discovertheword.org, click on the Donate tab, and then you can do that right there. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.